And we're back, ladies and gentlemen, on the Philippe Matthews Radio Show. Thank you for tuning in wherever you are around the world. We had uh, a wonderful session, uh, part three session with uh, Dr. Gleb Kapersky. Uh, and uh, he dropped off as he was saying something very profound, and we wanted to make sure that we got it. So we're going to call this part four uh, of our uh, interview uh, series uh, with Dr. Gleb Kapersky. And for those of you who might not have heard, uh, part three, part two, and part one. Dr. Gleb Sapersky is a decision-making scientist and emotional and social intelligence expert, and he's also the assistant professor at the Decision Sciences Collaborative and History Department at Ohio State University. Uh, and he's back with us today to uh, talk about uh, uh, this this amazing book that he wrote called The Truth Seeker's Handbook, A Science-Based Guide. Welcome back, uh, Dr. Sapersky. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be back on again. Really appreciate your good words about the book, Philippe. Thank you, thank you. So we were in our last session um, talking about the mere exposure effect, and uh, it was absolutely fascinating uh, because it was, I, I think it was connected to, you know, anchoring and various different other biases. Speak to us about the mere exposure effect and the, and the, and the research uh, uh, on this uh, particular bias uh, that uh, we are uh, unfortunately accustomed to. Sure. So this is a really fascinating fact where basically the first time we're exposed to something, this thing feels very novel to us. And in our savanna environment, so this all relates back to the savanna environment, in the savanna environment, that's for which we are adapted. Our brains are adapted for the savanna environment. They're not adapted for the modern world. So we need to, there are lots of errors that we make in evaluating reality and making good decisions just because our brains are not adapted for the modern world, but for the savannah environment. The mere exposure effect is one of those errors. So the mere exposure effect happens because in the savannah environment, it was very important, very important, that we focus on things that are novel in our environment, things that are new, things that are different. So it was really important, and so we tend to pay a lot of attention to them. And those things that are really important we tend, they, we perceive them as really important the first time we see them. The second time we see them, they're quite a bit less important. So if you think, uh, and less interesting. So this is kind of the feeling of interest, fascination. If you think of the first time you've read a book or the first time you've watched a movie, and then, you know, do you want to watch it a second time or read it a second time? It's much less interesting, but it's much less novel. So this novelty feeling. Or if you go on a vacation to some place, do you want to go to that? same place again, or maybe if you want to experience the same old thing that you did before, that's fine, comfort. But if you want to experience novelty, you're not going to go there. So this comfort versus novelty, you know, you might have to read a book or watch a movie because you have comfort with it. It feels like, oh, this is the thing I'm familiar with and it's comfortable for me. So there is a transformation over time whenever you are exposed to something new from novelty, excitement, allure, to comfort. This becomes more comforting. So this is, the, this is what the mere exposure effect does. And it's used extensively by marketers to manipulate us. Because if we're exposed to the same advertising message over time, the first time we're exposed to it, we're suspicious. We're like, oh, what are these people trying to sell us? And so, on. so we're like, eh. Well, if over time we're exposed to it more and more, it becomes less novel, less new, and more comfortable. And we become more comfortable with this information, and then we tend to accept it as more accurate, as more true, as more good. Because we as human beings, unfortunately, make the basic failure, make the basic mistake of, of confusing what's comfortable for what's true and what's uncomfortable for what's false. This is a really basic failure. We talked about it in the last show. Something that's comfortable is not necessarily true. Something that's not comfortable is not necessarily false. It might be or it might not be. These are two separate dimensions. But we mm -hmm. unfortunately can And so this is another way that politicians manipulate us. You know, you've probably heard the phrase that, uh, you know, people re you know, repeat the same, uh, you repeat lie often enough and become a scene that people start to believe it. Well, this is the, how politicians and others manipulate us. They repeat the same lie often enough. They keep repeating, repeating, repeating it. And we start to believe it because of the mere exposure effect. This, is, this mm -hmm. particular subcomponent of the mere exposure effect is also known as the illusory truth effect. So mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. where something that is a lie repeated often enough 
becomes to seem true. So it's the illusion of truth. That's why it's called the illusory truth effect. So we want to be able to help it. This is just the way our mind works. So in, as in all sorts of cognitive biases, what we need to do is develop mental tools that help us avoid these thinking errors. And that's what the book, The Truth Seekers Handbook of Science-Based Science, is all about. That's incredible because I, I'm uh, looking at the mere exposure effect and also the illusory effect. Um, I remember uh, distinctly uh, when um, Barack Obama was running for president against uh, John McCain. And uh, I guess he was doing some, uh, he was campaigning, and uh, uh, someone in the John McCain audience said, Well, you know, Barack Obama is, 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 is a Muslim. And John McCain said, No, ma'am, he's not. He's a Christian. He's a very good person. And you could tell that person obviously suffered from the mirror exposure effect and also the, the illusory effect uh, because she was, she, she, and then she obviously moved into what's known as a confirmation bias where she just knew that Barack Obama was going to, you know, bring in, in Tara and he was, and he was a Muslim. So that, that was another very, uh, a real, um, uh, real life story uh, of, of being able to apply how uh, these biases uh, 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 play a role uh, in our thinking and, and, and can actually be very dangerous. Absolutely. And this is how politics, this is definitely a great example from politics. This lady probably heard conservative, uh, extremist conservatives, not simply conservative, extremist conservatives repeat the lie often that uh, Barack Obama was born in Kenya and he is a Muslim. And she started to believe it because she heard it many, many, many times and she was exposed to it. It didn't seem novel, it seemed true. And that's what happened. So this is a very big problem and a dangerous one that we need to be very careful about dealing with so that we don't fall into the illusory truth effect. Absolutely. Well, even as a, as a research, um, the, the label of, of, of African countries being uh, shithole countries, uh, hearing, mm. that over, hearing that over and over again, here's another great example of the mere exposure effect and the illusory effect that will create a confirmation bias. Absolutely, yes. So this is another, this is a, definitely a great example where we will be unfortunately perceive this, uh, the, these countries over time, if they're repeated often and often and often, these are quote unquote should call countries, we will perceive them as such, unfortunately. And this is a real irrational way of thinking. Now, if we consider that there are countries there that people visit extensively, like South Africa, which has a really quite high level of living compared to, you know, comparable to a number of European countries. There's no way that can be accurately described as a shitful country. But combining them all together with Africa and repeating this often and often enough, people will start to perceive these countries as quote-unquote bad in some way, mm -hmm. you know, shithole in some way. And this is a very big danger. If we, if every time that we don't, that we hear shithole, we don't say, no, that's a false term, that's an inaccurate labeling. That's not how the world works. Mm -hmm. That's not how mm -hmm. Africa is. And, you know, I know I work with some people as part of the nonprofit I run, Intentional Insights. I work with some people from Africa who have great, wonderful lives, kids, joys, computers, whatever, you know, internet and so on. I know that. I know that they have fine lives. There's no way that it's appropriate to use shithole for those countries. So I know that, but many other people don't. So in order to ward yourself, protect yourself from that, whenever you hear a lie like that or any other lies, uh, it's very important to use the strategy of self-talk of saying, no, reject that false comparison. So this strategy of self-talk is one of many strategies that you can use to avoid the thinking error associated with the illusory truth effect. You know, also, uh, you talk about this in the book, uh, another one of the dangers is, is um, diminishing sensitivity and reference points, mm -hmm. right? So if you hear something yeah. over and over again based upon the mere exposure and it becomes novelty and, 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 and it's illusory because it's a lie, um, 
you, you start to become desensitized to it. So another example of that is that if you label all men of color, uh, black men particularly in this country, as thugs, you diminish sensitivity to it over time and that whatever happens to anyone or any person of color, uh, you, 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 you're, you're, you have no emotion or sensitivity to it, and that's where you start to lose your uh, uh, have a lack of humanity. Yes, this is a really good example. And so whenever you, um, if let's say the first time you heard black people referred to in that way, uh, or some, something black people refer to as thugs, over time, if that keeps being repeated to you, you will start, the first time it will be novel, it will be like, what, what do you mean they're thugs? Over time, if that keeps being repeated, if you watch a news source or listen to a politician, who keeps repeating that and you trust the politician uh, or that news source, you will start to develop uh, an idea that like, oh, this is not a big deal. This is what they, that this is what black people are called by this trustworthy news source all the time. And over time, it will become automatic in your mind that black people are thugs. This is just how this sort of uh, thinking corrupts and corrodes our society, mm -hmm. undermines our society uh, with the first time it's surprising and confusing and over time it just becomes part of the normal of your normal pattern of thinking it's mm -hmm. very insidious very harmful if we don't watch for it and it really undermines our society in very deep ways absolutely well you know i was i had a, a, a professor on another professor professor uh, james Dwayne, a, a, a very uh, amazing uh, uh, attorney and uh, he wrote a book uh, called uh, "You Have the Right to Remain Innocent." He's an advocate for the for the Fifth Amendment, and he he in there he listed. He says one of the things that uh, is, is is problem with uh, people who uh, end up uh, in uh, you know with almost life sentences and what have you is because cops, police officers are trained to a point where they have a confirmation bias that they have to be right basically at all costs uh, because. Uh, as a result of this level of profiling, they end up saying, you know, this is the way, this is this person's character, and they try to, you know, uh, coerce you into believing that you were at the scene of a crime or are a criminal or what have you, and because they just believe that that's the way it is and it's supposed to be. And again, this can be very dangerous uh, confirmation bias with the mirror effect and, and the illusory uh, as it relates to loss of life uh, and and the police killings, uh, uh, brutal police killings over over you know these last you know, few years, particularly as it's become media uh, uh, driven, that this is really what we're dealing with. There are certain biases that law enforcement has uh, that need to be addressed, and that if if, if not, this is going to continue to to happen. Yes, so this is a great example of how having the biases are are really harming our society. So police officers have this perception, this, this self-perception of themselves, and the blue the blue wall of silence as a tribe. Mm -hmm. All the police officers together as a tribe against everybody else. And uh, perception of black people as especially a hostile tribe. So that tends to this tribal thinking of, us versus them really harms the ability of police officers to accurately evaluate the reality of individual black people, individual white people, and accurately actually approach these two populations, these two individuals and populations, and evaluate their likelihood of, of committing a criminal act. This is, it is a really dangerous problem for our society this tribalism at the social level applied to police. So that's one element of it. Uh, and of course, another element of it is uh, another cognitive bias, which we didn't talk about yet, called overconfidence. So Ooh. the overconfidence effect, the overconfidence effect causes us, everyone, this applies to everyone, to have a too strong of a perception of confidence in our judgments. Mm -hmm. When someone, when people are asked, um, you know, hey, uh, how like, you know, how likely do you think this is to be the case? And they said, you know, 99.9% .9 or 100%. Then, when people are evaluated, uh, 
how actually likely something is to be the case, they're wrong about 20 to 40 percent of the time. Mm-hmm. So if something, if you if you believe something is 100 percent likely to be the case, then you're going to bet your house on it. You know, that's kind of like I bet my house on this thing <laughs> because mm-hmm. you know, definitely, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely, this will happen. Well, imagine, think of all your friends. You know, think what would happen if 30 percent of them lose their house. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what happened in 2008 when people were, when so many people were thinking that, yeah, I can, I'll bet my house that house prices are going to keep going up. That's literally what they did, and they lost their house. Wow. You know, I'm sure there are some uh, people listening to this show whose friends lost their house in 2008 because it's how they were thinking about their house, mm-hmm. and they lost that, you know, hundred percent bet. And so that is incredibly dangerous. People tend to be overconfident, and police tend to be way too overconfident about their gut reactions, their intuitions about who is going to be a criminal and who is not. They're listening to their guts. They're using their autopilot system. They're not actually thinking about things rationally and carefully using their intentional system. They're not addressing that overconfidence, that tendency to think, oh, you know, if I uh, arrested this person, therefore this person must be worthwhile of being arrested and convicted and going to jail. I am confident that this is, you know, this is what my gut tells me and I'm confident that I'm right. They look for evidence of, to confirm their beliefs. So the confirmation bias is where people look for evidence that tends to confirm their current beliefs, as opposed to information that accurately describes reality. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful if how our judicial system works is not looking for only evidence that confirms the guilt of someone, but actually disconfirmatory evidence, which means evidence that can show whether somebody is innocent or not. So mm-hmm. what about looking for, why is our judicial system based on only looking for evidence of guilt? Why isn't it looking for evidence of innocence? Wouldn't it be great if it did that as well, if it tried to demonstrate, you know, here's the evidence of guilt and here's the evidence of innocence? Mm-hmm. That would be a much more effective system in the val- and would go against a lot of these intuitions. Unfortunately, that's not how our judicial system is structured, and it plays into a lot of these biases that harm us and really undermine our society. You know, you talk about uh, uh, um, another uh, bias called catastrophizing, uh, and um, one of the, you, know, you, you talk about the biggest fears, there's some, some polling and case studies done about you know, America's biggest fears. Uh, and, uh, you know, another aspect of, of, of this in, in, in terms of confirmation bias, overconfidence bias, mere, effect, uh, mere exposure effect and illusory uh, effect uh, is, you know, all Muslims are bad, all Muslims are terrorists, uh, let's, uh, 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 you know, ban uh, uh, these countries from Muslims entering the country and labeling the entire religion and and population uh, because there's this catastrophizing uh, aspect uh, that has uh, been uh, uh, propagated by the media and politicians for so many years that we have become to, again, believe it and not questioning it. And as a result, we are victims of our own uh, biases. Yeah, so this is a really important one, where catastrophizing is exaggerating the likelihood of negative events happening. Now, if I, if you go out in the street and you ask, you know, somebody, how many people do you think died of a terrorist attack, in, you know, in the U.S. this year, or how many terrorist attacks do you think happened, or how many terrorists were implicated? You'd say something like, oh, you know, thousands. That's that would be kind of like the typical person who would be on the street. Well. If you actually look at the statistics of Muslim people involved in terrorist attacks, and I remember uh, 2015. So in 2015, there were something like nine Muslims involved in terrorist attacks. Now, think about the whole Muslim population. Let's not even look at the kids. Let's look at the adults. There's something like 1.8 million adult Muslims in the U.S. So your chance of any adult Muslim committing a terrorist act in 2018 in 2015 was something like one in 200,000. That's like pointing out a terrorist in several football stadiums. You know, it's very, very, very unlikely 
that any given Muslim you meet is going to be a terrorist. Unfortunately, like you said, Philippe, the media has painted Muslims as terrorists, and so have certain politicians. So certain media channels and certain politicians have painted Muslims as terrorists, and they depict Muslims as terrorists. So our mental association of Muslims, for very many people, is of terrorists, despite the fact that any given Muslim is incredibly unlikely to commit a terrorist act. Very, 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 very unlikely to commit a terrorist act. So right now what we're doing is wasting our resources of safety and security, of policing, on focusing on Muslims as opposed to catching the real criminals. If our uh, false positive rate, meaning the likelihood uh, of finding the wrong person is, you know, 199.999 out of 200,000, that's a terrible, terrible false positive rate. Mm-hmm. Where we can actually be focusing on the real criminals and the real potential terrorists and looking for them instead of looking at Muslims who are so incredibly unlikely to commit a terrorist act of any given Muslim. So that is a way that these cognitive biases are greatly undermining our justice system and our policing system. Uh, absolutely incredible. Um, let's uh, let's also talk about um, uh, you, you, you have you talk about in this book about evidence-based wisdom. Uh, I, I thought that was quite interesting, and that is actually uh, I, don't, I don't know if it's called a science, but it's, it's definitely a culture that is that is, is coming up. What what does that mean, evidence-based wisdom? Sure. So. Uh, there's a lot of research on what wisdom means. Uh, So what does it mean uh, when we are wise? What does it mean to be wise? This is not something that people really think about, uh, but there is quite a bit of research on what we do when we are trying to be wise. What does it mean to be wise? Who are our examples of wisdom? Who do we think of as wise people? And uh, this I talked about in the context of networks, of people around us. So we are, you know, we might think somebody around us is wise or not. We might think we are wise. We might think we are making our decisions individually because we're wise. Well, there's a lot of research that's actually showing on wisdom and other phenomenon that we are making our decisions to a large extent because of the ways our friends are making our decisions, are making their decisions. And this is called network effect. So the research on network effects shows that people on our social network affect us to a much greater extent than we intuitively recognize. So um, on, they affect us in both positive ways and negative ways. So if our spouse gives up smoking, we're about 67 68% uh, likely to give up smoking. If our close friend gives up smoking, we're, likely, we're 35% more likely to give up smoking as well. Well, of course, this works the other way around. If our friend starts smoking, we're more likely to start smoking. And the same thing goes for obesity. People, there has been fascinating research showing that if somebody loses weight, then her friends are much more likely to lose weight. If somebody gains weight, then her friends are much more likely to gain weight, and so on. So whatever types of decisions your friends make are going to be surprisingly impactful for you, for your life, for the kind of activities you do. So the so recognize that and look at the friends around you. Are they making the kind of choices that you want to be making? Are they influencing you in the way that you want to be influenced? Mm-hmm. And if not, you know, consider looking for other friendship groups. It's a really easy and simple strategy. Uh, it takes some effort to implement of looking for other friendship groups, but it's a very effective strategy for actually addressing uh, the network of people around you. So. For example, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous has been found to be quite an effective group for getting people uh, to stop drinking. But the research on why that is, it's not because of anything that Alcoholics Anonymous actually does. It's not because of its program. It's because of the peers, the network of peers. Mm -hmm. So similar similar, uh, groups that use networks of peers have actually somewhat higher, better results than Alcoholics Anonymous. So it's not the programming of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not what they do at meetings that actually results in people 
having better outcomes of stopping drinking. It's simply the peer group, the peer support that results. A lot of people around you who are influencing you to stop drinking because they're trying to stop drinking themselves or mm-hmm. stop narcotics. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, the same sort of psychological phenomenon. We are strongly influenced by our tribe, going back to tribal, uh, to tribalism. Whatever tribe we pick, whatever people we associate with, we're going to be strongly influenced by them in several ways that we don't recognize we are. So wow. it's very important to pick the right people to be with. Absolutely incredible, amazing. Uh, you also talk about, uh, again, seeing yourself in the beta of this book, um, loss aversion. And I thought it was fascinating where you say that, uh, you know, that, that losing a dollar feels twice as bad as hiding a dollar. That was something. Hmm. Yes, this is, uh, this is a really interesting phenomenon. So when you ask people, uh, what would they prefer? Uh, would they prefer to have $45 or a 50% chance of winning $50, of uh, winning $100? You know, most people um, respond that they would actually prefer $45. Now, in reality, the rational thing to do is to say, uh, to, you know, I want a 50% chance of winning $100 because that's pretty much equivalent to $50, not $45. But mm-hmm. most people don't respond that way. They don't think about it that way. They want the safety and certainty of something that they can grasp in their hands rather than a chance to win a higher sum, even though rationally speaking, they should do that. Now, uh, another phenomenon uh, which is quite interesting is when you ask people, would they prefer, uh, if they have $100, would they prefer a 50-50% chance of losing that $100, or uh, would they prefer to just immediately keep $55? Most people would say they would prefer the 50-50% chance of losing $100 versus just keeping $55. You know, I'm here. You know, I'll, I'll give you $100 now. You, you either give me $45 back, or you take a 50-50% chance of losing $100. Mm-hmm. And again, this is an irrational choice. Most people uh-huh. tend to say, I'll take the chance, which is equivalent to losing $50 versus giving me $45. Wow. <laughs> so this is a very simple example of, this is how the study was structured. This is a very simple example of where people make horrible decisions because they don't want to lose things mm-hmm. and they value not losing things over gaining things. Now think about that over your uh, career. If you're not, if you're, let's say, in a safe job and uh, you're not taking a chance at a higher job that has more risks, you will consistently underperform your whole career. And mm-hmm. with compounding interest, you're giving up, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars, depending on your salary, over your whole career, if you're not taking the risks that you should take. That's one. Wow. And, uh, you know, it works the other way, too. If you have something and you're not, you know, you're taking too many risks to keep it, you're losing hundreds of thousands or perhaps millions of dollars over the course of your career because of the same phenomenon, the same problematic pattern of thinking of what's called loss aversion, where we are more averse to losing something than to gaining something. And that's a very irrational thought pattern that unfortunately, again, comes back from the Savannah environment. In the Savannah environment, we didn't need to think long-term, and it was more important to keep something than not lose it. So it was really important you know, to have food, sustenance. We can't refrigerate food, right? This is not so in the Savannah environment. And uh, our lives tended to be really governed by the circumstances around us. So it was much better to have two, you know, a bird in the hand than two in the bush. Wow. So that yeah, was really yeah, important. Yeah. Wow. That wow. was pretty important in this Savannah environment. In our current environment, that's much less important. We're not going to die if we don't get, you know, uh, $50 versus $45. But if that is the kind of choice that we make every day of our lives, think about every day of your life, you're giving up $5. You know, think about that. What does that do to your life? 
But over the course of a month, that's $150. Over the course of a year, that's something like um, $1,500 and so on. So, and people make much bigger losses than this. This is just kind of a toy example of uh, you know, $5, losing $5 every day. This is kind of the example where people don't ask for promotions where they should. They don't start businesses when they should and so on. And I, I do a lot of consulting for companies, and uh, this is the kind of thing I help them realize that they're making bad decisions. They're not taking advantage of opportunities. They should be taking, uh, that they should be taking more risks. And another case is where companies are risking too much versus giving up a certain thing, um, where they're taking risks to try to save $50 versus giving up $45. Wow, that is incredible. That, wow. That's amazing, right? There's so many, again, seeing yourself in the data, ladies and gentlemen, you are able to go through this book and you will see your life in this book, actually, and you will be able to look and make a, 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 an immediate evaluation, not only of what you may or may not have done correctly, but what you are able to do immediately to correct the behavior, because remember, uh, Dr. Sapersky was saying just in one session on rationality alone, uh, that person was able to, you know, you're, you're able to make uh, significant changes. So it's like once your mind, I think what is it, Nietzsche says, once the mind has been exposed, it, it can't go back to the way it used to be, something to that effect. Mm -hmm. So uh, winding down, uh, you, you mentioned something in the book called an UG field. What is an UG field? Yes. So UG field is a, Interesting phenomenon where we have, when we have, an, when we have something uncomfortable about a topic, we tend to flinch away from thoughts about the topic and not think about it. So let's say um, your relationship with your spouse is not going well. Now, the rational thing to do in that situation is to think about the causes of what's going on, evaluate the situation, perhaps talk to your spouse, and make sure you get your relationship better on track, perhaps you know, go to a marriage counselor or something. Unfortunately, that's not what most people tend to do. They tend to ignore the negative information, the uncomfortable feelings about what's going on. They develop an UG field around the topic of, you know, bad, really, you know, challenging interactions with spouse. And we have huge divorce rates partially because of that. Another example is we talked last time about denialism, where lots of CEOs, uh, of all the CEOs who are fired, more than 20% are fired because they deny the truth about the company's performance, negative performance. They ignore these facts. Now, the boards who force out these CEOs, they're not complaining about these CEOs uh, not doing something, you know, underperforming about uh, the problem. They would be fine if the CEOs recognize the problem and then took steps to address it. But the CEOs are denying the problem. Same thing, Ugfield. The CEOs are ignoring negative information about the company's performance because of negative feelings about it. They feel bad about it. I've been in many situations in my consulting career where I had to deal with CEOs or managers ignoring negative information about the company's performance or perhaps an employee's performance. That has been a case where they're, you know, everyone on the team knows the employees underperforming and the CEO is refusing to recognize it and the employees really undermining the company as a result, the performance of the team. So, there is an UG field around that information. And there's always some emotional component around the UG field from some of the cognitive biases we talked about before, overconfidence or something like that, a halo effect that underlies the UG field. A tribal, some kind of tribal association underlies the UG field. And so the CEO... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, finish, please. Yeah, so the CEO or, uh, you know, in your relationship, well, same thing with politicians. You know, you might have some ug field uh, about negative information about your favorite politician and not be willing to acknowledge it. This is actually negative information, and should mm -hmm. cause you to have a less positive opinion of your favorite politician. Same thing. So all these ug fields are things where we are not recognizing the truth of reality because of our emotions. Our gut intuitions are causing us to steer away from the truth of reality, and mm -hmm. so because of that steering away from the truth of reality, we're failing to recognize reality and making really bad decisions because of an UG field we've built up around it. And is it, is it possible that that UG field can, can become so big and, and overwhelming that it would trigger the backfire effect? 
Absolutely. No, the, the backfire effect is definitely triggered by phenomenon like bug fields. It's okay. um, something like when you, uh, so the backfire effect is where we tend to stick to previous assumptions, even when given corrective information, sometimes even sticking st stronger to those false beliefs, even when we have more correct information. So it's, you know, if you imagine somebody saying, um, let's say, you know, uh, you, you think somebody's uh, husband is cheating on them and you start to bring up the topic and the, the wife is going like, no, 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 don't talk about to that about me. That's horrible. I would never want to hear about that. That's the that's how phenomenon of back of backfire effect and bug field with backfire effect might work in action where somebody refuses to recognize negative information. Or a CEO, if you start to present information, negative information about the company's performance, the CEO might you know get angry with you and potentially even fire you. Uh, and that's another example where bug field effect where bug field might start to work with the back might work with the backfire effect. It's very dangerous. Of course, you can hear it often in politics as well, where people start to hate on each other after talking, after somebody presents accurate information about somebody's favorite politician. It's negative. Absolutely amazing. So, what is the narcissism of small differences or difference? You talk about that in the book as well. Yes. So, narcissism of small difference is where we tend to focus on ourselves as you know, ideal types. And when we have somebody who is a little bit different than us, we tend to have much more, we tend to have much more facility toward that person or that group than people who are vastly different than us. I'll give you an example. Within the, so let, let's, go to, let's go to politics as, as an example. Within the Republican Party right now, uh, Trump is a controversial figure. So people within the Republican Party who support Trump and those who don't support Trump, they tend to be much more hostile to each other than uh, and kind of you know, attacking each other than they would attack somebody from outside the party, Democrats or you know, mm -hmm. socialists. Or and the same thing within uh, the Democratic Party in the last election with the Hillary supporters versus the Bernie Sanders supporters, Hillary Clinton versus Bernie Sanders. Same thing, very strong attacks on each other versus even though they're almost the same in in terms of their ideological position and so on. They're mm -hmm. very close, but they tend to spend so much emotion and energy on conflict with each other versus their supposed worst opponents, the Republican Party, or so on. And uh, you can see examples of this within families, where families who you know love each other and so on, and they disagree on certain things, and they tend to spend so much of their time and energy bickering about these things and being hostile and back, you know, fighting with each other when uh, they really are aligned on so much else. They tend mm -hmm. to focus on the small things that divide them and make them the focus of their activities. They're, they, make the, they make the whole relationship, the whole interaction about these things. They hate, they start to hate each other because of these small differences. Whereas if you look at what they share, where they're alike, there's so much of they share you know, they might share 99.9% .9 of everything else, but they focus on the 0.1% that they don't share, and they make it all about the 0.1%. Wow. So that's, that's the, the narcissist small differences. Wow, that's incredible. Last two uh, 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 biases. Uh, one, uh, talk to us about uh, the thinking era, uh, era known as the, the illusion uh, of control, uh, and then we can, we can go into the desirability uh, bias as well. Sure. So the illusion of control causes us to perceive that we have more control over our environment than we do. So it causes us to perceive that we can uh, get people to do things that we want them to do. It causes us to uh, shape, shape our physical environment and so on. It, and really, in reality, the only things we can have control over in life are our thoughts, our behaviors, and our feelings. It's the only things we can control in life. You know, from the smallest person, you know, from um, somebody who has, let's say, relatively low status in their society, from beggar on the street, let's say, to, uh, to Bill Gates or uh, Donald Trump, the only things they really control in life are their thoughts, behaviors, and feelings. Now, they can influence other people through resources they possess, which goes from their thoughts, behaviors, and feelings. But those people can make decisions that go at odds with Bill Gates 
they can go at odds with Donald Trump and we could see you know, infighting within the personal circles of all of those people with Bill Gates to a lesser extent than Donald Trump. But you know, we can see that infighting, we can see conflicts. Those people actually control much less than we tend to think they do. Mm-hmm. They have much less influence and power than we tend to think they do. They are people just like us. Bill Gates is a person, Obama is a person, Donald Trump is a person. They're all people. You know, all the CEOs, the Pope is a person, uh, the, you know, everyone is a person, is an individual. And the only things we can control in life are our thoughts, behaviors, and feelings. And this is why it's so important. This is kind of what the book is all about, focusing on managing, controlling. The only things we have in life are thoughts, behaviors, and feelings. People tend to think that their thoughts, behaviors, and feelings are set, that they're natural, they're intuitive. But they're not. We can change our thinking, we can change our behavior, we can change our feelings using science-based strategies that work, that are researched, that are peer-reviewed and evidence-based. And the book talks about how do we do that, how do we change the only things in life that we can control so that we can evaluate reality accurately, make good decisions, and reach our goals, regardless of whether we're a beggar on the street or, you know, Donald Trump or Bill Gates. Mm, Wow. Incredible. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. And the desirability effect. Yes. So the desirability bias is the thinking error where one's idealized outcomes would come true. So uh, this relates to what we talked about, the planning fallacy, where we tend to assume that our plans will turn out well, but it focuses specifically on our idealized outcomes. So let's say um, we are in a business interaction. And we're thinking, okay, kind of this is how this interaction will go. You know, I will plan out my um, product launch, and the product launch will go well. The customers will all be happy, and you know, I will get uh, a lot of money. So th- this is the idea that this is our idealized outcomes would come true. Now we don't tend to think about all the things that would go wrong to, that would prevent this idealized outcomes. Maybe our customers aren't going to be so enthusiastic about this product. Maybe it'll take much more effort and resources to get through than we think it will. Maybe, you know, our organization will not be able to handle very well uh, the kind of support uh, that customer supporters will be necessary. But we don't tend to think about these things. We tend to fixate on those desirable outcomes and focus all of our energy on those desirable outcomes as opposed to thinking about contingencies and what might go wrong. So when I come into companies, this is something I really do quite often. I work on helping them figure out what can go wrong, how do we address it in advance to help get that desirable outcome into place because if you don't address the contingencies, it will often not happen. Now, you can look at it, uh, this doesn't only apply in companies, it applies in government. Think about uh, the Big Dig in Boston. Very famous project which was supposed to cost about $2 billion. Uh, end up costing something like $9 billion. So, you know, the desirable, and uh, it went over by about a decade of how long it was going to, supposed to take place. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you think of a project that costs uh, more than 400% its original price and, you know, goes way, way, way over time, you can tell that that's a situation where desi- the desirability bias played a big role in the plans where people just wanted the outcome of having nice, addressing the congestion, the road congestion in Boston, and didn't really think about the kind of things they need to get that outcome into place. Wow, excellent. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the book is called The Truth Seekers Handbook uh, and uh, by Dr. Gleb Sapersky. It's absolutely amazing. And uh, there's a section in the book, I know some of you are saying, well, how do I put all of this stuff together? And there's a section in the book where he talks about this, particularly as it as it relates to um, once you are able to get your own biases in check, recognize yourself in this work, and recognize uh, these biases in yourself, then you're going to ask the question, well, how do I transfer that to other people who don't haven't read this book and haven't uh, uh, learned or been exposed to their own biases? And so uh, there's a piece uh, that, that is, is critical. Uh, that, that Dr. Sapersky put into this book. He calls it EGRIP. Uh, it's an acronym for Emotions, Goals, Rapport, Information, and Positive Reinforcement. 
And um, I don't know if you want to go through just a brief uh, uh, understanding of it. I don't want you to go into detail because we want people to get the book. We want people to take these exercises and, 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 and learn the process. But um, it's an actual blueprint, uh, if you will, ladies and gentlemen, to how to deal with uh, other people's biases, particularly when you're in the situation of uh, maybe being in a subordinate position, uh, but also even being in a leadership position and being able to move people toward a particular, toward a collective uh, goal. Uh, Dr. Sikorsky, please. Sure, of course. So people tend to, when they deal with others, assume that other people are rational and logical, and that's just not the case. Other people are much more moved by their gut reactions, by their emotions, by their intuitions, than they are by their reason and logic. So if you see somebody doing something that you think is irrational, having irrational beliefs, you need to understand that they're not doing it because they're hostile or maniacal or something like that, they're malicious. They're doing it for emotional reasons. They're the hero in their own story. So assume that. And don't start to present uh, facts and evidence to them. Figure out what are their emotional blocks. What's the emotions part of it? I talk about how to do so in the book. Figure out, you know, you, what are their emotional blocks or cognitive biases that are preventing them from having rational beliefs and rational decisions. Then figure out what goals you all share, you and that other person, and voice them in the conversation. Build rapport. Build, that's the third part of it. Rapport mean, means trust, and I talk about it in the book of how to do that. Only then would you want to present the information that you held back in the beginning. That's the fourth part, information that would help that person feel they already trust you at that point. You show them using the information how having irrational beliefs and bad decisions would undermine the goals you both share. And finally, you move on to positive reinforcement where you encourage them to keep orienting toward rational thinking accurate evaluation of reality in the future, so you don't have to repeat this exercise with them uh, again and again. And that's eGrip, and the book goes through in detail how to use that to get other people who don't have the current realizations you'll have um, after you read the book about these cognitive biases, how do you move them along to being more rational, more oriented toward the intentional system and less toward the autopilot. Excellent. Fantastic. Dr. Sapersky. Obviously, uh, we're going to have to have you come back again. I know this is a three-part series. Right now, it's a four-part series, but uh, there's so many areas that we can focus on. Once we have laid the foundation of all of these biases, there's so many areas that we can focus on on how to apply it and where to apply it, particularly in our ways of political thinking and, 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 and ways of, of improving our uh, relationships, uh, in ways of uh, improving our, our business, uh, even just getting a job and becoming uh, adept at that job and getting promoted. There's just so the, the, the uh, areas of, of, of application uh, is multiplicable. And so I just appreciate uh, you taking time out of your life <laughs> to do this work. And you're still relatively a young guy. So I can't wait for the well, next uh, five to ten years of your work and research. Uh, you're changing lives. And, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, this guy – writes for Time Magazine uh, so and Psychology Today and on a regular basis. And so we're not talking about just um, uh, a thinking head, if you will. We're talking about somebody that really has been peer-reviewed in a sense and that the, uh, some of the highest levels of uh, most integrous levels uh, of, uh, of media uh, have recognized this, this, this man's work. Uh, and uh, allows him to, uh, uh, on a regular basis, on a repeated basis, come back and, and give us the latest data uh, on decision uh, theory. So I really appreciate you, Dr. Sapersky, and the work that you have uh, done and are continuing to do. Briefly, before you leave, I know you have a project that I signed up to, uh, and it's, what is it called, the Truth Project? Talk to us about that and the website and where people can go. Sure. So yeah, and thank you again for your kind words. It's always a pleasure to be on with you and hear your kind words. The project that I'm involved with is the Pro-Truth Pledge, P-R-O-T-R-U-T-H-P-L-E-D-G-E.org, ProTruthPledge.org. It unites everyone who cares about facts and truth in our society, who wants to orient toward truthfulness and help others orient toward truthfulness in, in politics, in media, in business, 
in all areas of public life. So it's about fighting misinformation and incivility in public discourse. Anyone who wants to do so can go to protruthpledge.org. Any private citizen listening to this right now, go to protruthpledge.org and take a minute to take the pledge to cast your vote for truthfulness in our society, for stability in our society, and to fight misinformation and incivility. That's a project that I'm passionate about as part of my broader work to promote accurate evaluation of reality and wise decision-making at all levels of our society. Wow. Thank you for that, Dr. Spursky. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you got, you got your assignment. Uh, first is you got to go and you've got to download. If you're a techie like me, you're going to download this uh, book on your Kindle or your phone, or you're just going to order it uh, or go to the bookstore and pick it up. But Truth Seekers uh, Handbook, uh, it's a must. And then what I'd love for you to do, go back after you, after you, after you got the book, um, go back to all of the interviews, all of these wonderful uh, interviews with Dr. Sapersky and, and listen to them, and you'll be able to dig even deeper because this is not a book where you do a once-over and say, I got it. You really want to apply this in your, in, in your life and make it part of your, your, if you will, your psychological lexicon. Become a, you know, this should become cellular and almost second nature in thinking. So go back, listen to the interviews, and, and go through the book and, and listen to uh, uh, Dr. Sapersky, you know, bring out various different biases and effects and, 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 and uh, uh, the, the case studies, and do the, do the work, do the research and, and the primary research. And I guarantee you uh, it will be life-changing. You, you, I'm sure you've heard on many shows, uh, sometimes they have the caveat in the beginning that says the views and opinions of this person doesn't, it doesn't reflect that of the network. Well, in this case, Dr. Glenn Sapersky's uh, views and opinions does reflect mine as well <laughs> on the Philippe Matthews show. <laughs> so if that's not an endorsement in the past, oh, I don't know what the hell is, okay? So thanks again, Dr. Sapersky. We'll talk soon. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Philippe. Thanks. I appreciate you having me on, and I appreciate you yourself having taken the approach as much. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Take care, everybody.